Luke chapter 2, and yes, you need to actually turn there in your Bibles or your electronic communication device. Feel free to use that. Just don't check your emails uh, or the scores of games or anything like that. So uh, do dial into the scriptures. Luke chapter 2, we're going to spend some time there, and then we're going to jump over to Luke 24 this morning. Uh, as we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, we, we make it a regular habit to spend time in a book of the Bible just unpacking that, but this season provides us an opportunity to focus on the coming of Christ. It is glorious, isn't it? Amen. It is overwhelming. Amen. It is full of great joy. Amen. And so we have just been following the first coming of Christ. We've been doing that by looking at the storyline of Scripture. So I hope that you have maybe walked away each week saying, wow, what a, what a neat connection, how amazing our Bible is and how wonderful Jesus is. And this morning, we're just going to do the same thing, but we get the joy this morning of arriving arriving at the baby, arriving at the coming of Christ. So I pray and been praying that we'd walk away full of joy this morning. But why don't we just dive right in to see this seed of hope that we have been tracing and has been developed throughout the Old Testament. Let's see its fulfillment here in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start by reading the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Pause there for a moment and read a little bit more. Now, I think we're all there. All right, good. All right. Luke, see, this is the way I grew up in church. You had to open your Bibles. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Amen, indeed. Ah. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. From the town of Nazareth to Judah, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A most familiar story. And interestingly enough, Luke is the only one who gives us that little detail of where Jesus lay. But here in this text, Bethlehem and David... These two words ring with tremendous previous promises. Remember how we've been tracking and hear Luke's retelling of the birth of Jesus. These two kind of jump off the page because as we read those two words in our minds, much in the previous unfolding of Scripture comes to mind. Now, I'll agree, there is a lot going on in this text. We have spent time here before over Christmas seasons, and there is a lot to enjoy. But these two terms 
kind of uh, ground this birth, this baby who's coming into the world, kind of ground it real firmly, ground Christ to all of the Old Testament promises. These are not just mere details. They are serving us as readers of our Bibles to be signaled that something significant is happening. That this Christ, this baby who is coming, is that promised seed, a offspring who was going to come and deliver his people. Though it's Caesar who decrees that a census be taken, it's ultimately not him who is moving history, is it? From 1 Samuel to Micah, the scriptures have declared something about this Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was going to come. We have learned something about him, that this Christ, this baby, would need to be born in Bethlehem. You guessed it. You see, this is no mere census happening This is not just an exercise of a powerful king to just know who's all in the land. No, no, no. This is a sovereign God moving all the pieces to fulfill the details of the birth of the real ruler. You see, the real king is coming, and that real king needs to fulfill all of the promises, and he needs to head over to his birthplace to be born. And in doing so, fulfill all of God's promises in the most unlikely way. And this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We've seen throughout all the scriptures that we have looked at over the last couple weeks that no king, oh, no king can stop God's king from coming. And all kings have been used to bring about God's desired in the birth of his son, the Messiah, the king who is both prophet and priest, the one who will deliver. Well, he is to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures have told us. We should not expect anything less. So here God moves all things to have him born exactly as it had been declared. Bethlehem. The great king finds his entrance into the world, guided by a sovereign God, not just a powerful king who wants to know how many people are in my land. No, God moving the pieces to bring about the great king. He is here. He is entered into the world by the work of a sovereign God. And he fully takes upon himself humanity. Now this great king is not born in a palace, but in a manger. His entrance into the world, the most meager way, connects him with our plight, doesn't it? Connects him with his People, the King, our Savior, identifies with us. The King born in the lineage of the great David that everyone has been waiting for, this great King. And isn't it fascinating that Joseph is in the line of the great King listening to another King? 
Oh, where is the one from the lineage of David? He is here. And he comes not in palaces, but in the most eager or or meager means. The one we've been looking for. And he's resting in the most humble bed. However much you didn't like your sleep last night, I bet it was a little better. This, the king of the world, our savior, the promised one, lays his head in a most humble bed because the fulfillment of all of God's promises must be this way. Unlikely to say the least, he comes, the Savior, the one we've been tracking, he comes, and even in his birth, he comes in the most humble way, identifying, I'm the one who will bear your burdens. As he lay his head in the most humble bed, what is being declared? That the promise is fulfilled. And what is being fulfilled? That he will bear the burden that you and I just simply cannot overcome. Jesus comes on the universal stage, right? The long-awaited one. We've been looking at him all the way, eagerly anticipating. He comes on this universal stage as a humble king, as the king who is going to bear our burdens, in order to overcome them. See, the promises that they have been waiting for is for the king to come and overcome all that they could not. And here he comes humbly in the most unlikely way. And now there's a lot in those first seven verses. But can we together this morning appreciate how the hope of the world enters the world? Almost screaming that, oh, what God intended in fulfilling all of his promises is in the most unlikely, humble way. Glorious indeed to identify with his people, to take upon himself what you and I endure. Well, there's a lot to enjoy in those first seven verses, but here he comes, the promised one, as a humble king signifying in a most amazing way that this king is the one who will actually be able to bear our burdens. Well, let's continue to look at the birth of Jesus Christ, the one that we have been tracking, the one that they have all been waiting for by reading the next section, verses 8 to 21. I'll give you a second to get your eyes there. All right, we're dialed in. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. No kidding. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. If you don't make a regular habit to read, you know, on Christmas morning, the account of Jesus, read this section. This is good 
good. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Verse 11, oh, here it is. Sounds kind of familiar. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Would you like to have heard this? This would have been amazing. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, um, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. From Isaiah 9 to Luke 2, the announcement of God's fulfillment of deliverance does not change. For unto you a child is born. Rephrased here, a Savior is born. And to get real technical, we could say, for unto y'all. The announcement of God's fulfillment of deliverance rings throughout all of Scripture exactly the same. The baby is born. The baby is born. And, and Luke, carried along by the Holy Spirit, unpacks it just a little bit for us, doesn't he? He rephrases the Savior is born. He is here. The angels say, this is great news, that this is wonderful news that causes great joy. So what we find that at the same time that Jesus is born, which is, brings us great hope, there's shepherds out tending the flock, their flock in a field. After we read about the humble beginnings of the rightful king in the most un, uh, like unimaginable way, right? The Lord then reveals to shepherds, humble king comes, then to humble shepherds, he reveals good news about Jesus. And what's the good news? He's born. <laughs> he is here. And this is interesting because we know Matthew tells us of the wise men traveling, right? Seeing the star. Well, that kind of makes sense to me. Well, the wise men need to go see the true king. I mean, a king has been born, so the elite need to be aware and go. But Luke says, oh, also, shepherds were told. Shepherds were told. Here, as the rightful king lays his head in a humble bed, there are shepherds that need to know. 
Jesus is for all, even the lowly. The fulfillment of all this wonderful promise in the most humble way. His birth is good news for all people. That's what the angels actually say. And in them bringing it to lowly shepherds is reminding us again that at the fulfillment of all that God has said, it is for all, even the lowly. Throughout the entire birth narrative of Jesus, Luke continues to show that Jesus, the promised one, is indeed coming to the hurting. There's a lot to be said about that this Advent season. (laughs) That Jesus in his first coming is identifying and, and coming into the mess, into the hurting, to the forgotten, to the ones that sin has destroyed. This is how the rightful king enters the world. And now the announcement is made to lowly shepherds. And there's a lot we could even explore with that, right? Shepherds, that's an interesting analogy, isn't it? Jesus tends to be a shepherd himself, doesn't he? (laughs) Tending to sheep that will probably cart it off to be sacrificed. Well, there's a lot richness there. But here, the lowly shepherds hear this wonderful news that a rightful king has come in the most humble way. Once again, as God fulfills all his promises, he is identifying with you and I, the lowly, the hurting. You're not beyond God's care. By identifying with us, this is how he can accomplish his greatest work. This is how God fulfills his promise of conquering sin. Oh, that, by the way, we learned was going to happen in Genesis 3, 15. Do you know that this ideal, that Jesus identifying with the lowly, taking on flesh, has sustained the church for centuries? And let me just say, it doesn't need to stop. What we have tracked and what we have looked at over the last couple of weeks of how much joy and excitement is being fulfilled. And we can say, oh, I see it. And he is identifying with me. That's, that's good news. In the most humble of ways in the fulfillment of all this goodness, all it's so perfect. And in it comes A tremendous joy for you and I. Jesus taking flesh has sustained the church, brothers and sisters, and it sustains us yet again this morning. Let us not soon forget the joy that will come when you rip into presence. (laughs) That has already come, rather, as we wake on Christmas morning. It has been such a huge source of joy and difficulty. Jesus knows our hardships. That they could have, could have come into the world, fulfilled all the promises in a million different ways, but yet it's specific, it's good, it's exactly what was necessary. Jesus came humbly, and in doing so, he declares God's faithfulness. The rightful king doesn't need palaces and pomp and circumstance just needs a place to lay his head down, a meager place, because his work is great. This is, this is great news, and, and that in and of itself is worthy enough to be joyous about. 
But do you know it's really what the angels, the messengers, the ones sent from heaven, it's really what he says that drives the entire section, right? That generates the tremendous amount of joy. What, what does he say? First of all, fear not. Like, yeah, okay, man, how am I not going to fear? Like, this is kind of wild. But he, he, don't worry, I've got really great news. And what is it for unto you, for unto y'all, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Boy, is that a loaded statement. <laughs> Savior, Christ, and Lord? Three of the most significant things that do indeed cause great joy. Just the fact that he's here in the most humble way is joyous. But now we get more. That this boy, this baby who has been born in the humble way is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Well, okay. There's something to that. I mean, it's wonderful that when a baby enters into the world, that's glorious. I'm sure my mom and dad were pretty excited to see me. But I don't think on the hills of seeing me that it was going to be known anything to this degree. More of he's going to be a pain, he's going to be difficult, he's going to be hard to raise. But here, this baby is unlike anything else. Savior. Christ and Lord. The baby, the seed, the offspring is a savior, indicating that he will bring people out of despair and give them great peace, that he will destroy the thing that oppresses. That's what saviors do. Saviors come to save people. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but that's helpful for us this morning. Saviors come to save people from things that they cannot overcome, much like a firefighter who rushes into a burning building to save people from the flames and smoke. Jesus' birth is God coming into the world, into the burning building, to save people. Why does he willingly take on flesh? Flesh? What is it that he's taking on flesh to save us from? Well, the angel says it plain to Joseph back in Matthew's account. He says that he, Jesus, the baby who lays in a manger just a few miles away from these shepherds, will save his people from their sin. Says it directly to Matthew, but it is clearly implied here by these terms. Because the understanding of Jesus as Savior is this, that he saves us from the ultimate consequence of sin, separation from God. That's what this baby who takes flesh and has to take flesh does, saves us from the consequences of sin, separation from God. This is significant. This is the only way to return us to fellowship with God. Do you remember just a few weeks ago when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden? The ultimate consequence of being separated from God? We knew from that moment, third page of our Bibles, we needed a Savior who could rescue us and bring us back. He's here. 
Jesus is the one. He is our Savior. What do we celebrate in Advent? We celebrate the coming of our Savior. He is the seed of hope that was planted in Genesis 3.15. This baby is not only Savior, but this baby born close by these shepherds that is generating a, a lot of joy amongst the angels as they declare this truth. And it's all because of who he is. He is also the Christ. Now, if you spend any amount of time around here, we've unpacked this. But perhaps it's worth saying again what this term means. It is yet another term. Luke makes it plain that the baby who is born in a manger is the one we have been waiting for. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah that is developed in the Old Testament. It's not just a last name, as we oftentimes joke about. It is a term that indicates that he is the anointed one. Comes about in the Old Testament, Psalms 2, quite a few other places, that Messiah, the Hebrew word for anointed one, will come and he will be Savior. Christ is the way that the New Testament refers to this term and also this promise. He's the one, the baby born in a manger. He's the one that has been talked about from the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent from God to save us from our sin. Who will bring the ultimate blow to the serpent, to Satan? You see, great hope was placed on that term Christ and Messiah. Why? Because it was God's promise of deliverance. Who will do it? All these kings have come and gone, and all these prophets and all these priests have come and gone, but to no avail, the Messiah hasn't come. And the angels say, I've got really good news. The Savior's here. Why is the Savior here? Because he's the Messiah. He's the one who can bear the burdens that we have seen no one else can. Why is this good news of great joy? Maybe rhetorical at this point. But it's worth saying because the promise of God lay in a manger just a little ways away from these shepherds. This is good news. Savior's here. The promised one who's going to deliver, it's happening. And he's come in a manger, and, and now you're telling shepherds. This is good news for all. This is good news for everybody. Perhaps a pastoral side note for you. I don't even have in my notes. The annoying co-worker. This is good news for them. The difficult family member. This is good news for them too. The children that are on very slight occasion unruly. Mom, Dad, this is good news for them. It's good news for all people because the promise of God came in a baby. 
of God taking flesh. But there's more. Savior, Christ, but he's also identified here. He is also Lord. Do you catch that? Christ the Lord? There's something to that, isn't there? There's something happening that's identifying him as something just maybe a little different than you and I. None of us have ever been called Lord, nor should we. If you declare to be called Lord, it's not really um, right and not what is being said here. Here, there's meaning underneath this word Lord. What it is indicating is that this baby, that is 100% human, is also 100% divine. Now, Christians aren't known for great math, but it's still true. 100% human, 100% divine. And this word is hinting at that this baby who lays in a most humble place that needs the care of his mother to survive, that needs rest, he's also Lord, 100% fully divine. You see, he is the expected Savior, He is the expected Messiah who has come in human flesh. But the most unlikely thing has also occurred in that manger. God himself has taken flesh. Expectation of a divinely king was anticipated. We saw that, right? We we saw that being unpacked. We saw the seed of hope watered. This is one of the ways that it was watered, that this king would be divinely somehow, some way, but God himself taking flesh. Oh my. Oh my, what great news of great joy. Why does this title, if you don't believe me, of Lord mean this? Well, in the Old Testament, we get the name of God. You ever seen this in your Old Testament? You get the word Lord, and it's in small caps, you know, your Old Testament. That's identifying something. Um, If you've never read the intro to your Bibles, I highly encourage that. It gives you some info like that. Uh, You're like, wow, I just read my Bible. But all the intro before tells you why the Bible does that. You see, within the scripture, there is a way of referring to God. We often pronounce Yahweh. It's four radicals, four four letters, a Y, a H, a W, an H. And every time we come to that uh, four radicals in our Old Testament, we pronounce it Yahweh. It is the name of God, the one and true God. Unlike any other God, the one true God. So you'll see in the scriptures, particularly Old Testament, they make those small caps to identify. This is uniquely identifying the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the one, right? Yahweh is how we oftentimes pronounce that. This was such a um, revered name that oftentimes uh, early, early on Jewish folks would not even say Yahweh. It was just too holy of a name to even pronounce. They would oftentimes say Adonai instead of Yahweh. But this term, referring to God himself. The Greek version, you guessed it, of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint. Wonderful, right? There's a Greek version of the Hebrew text. And so when they get to that word, and they're going to try to bring that over into the Greek, you know what they do? You guessed it. They use the word Lord, kurios, to be the exact Greek word. And so this begins to develop a habit 
for New Testament writers to identify Christ as Kyrios, as Lord, as Yahweh. Oh, this is incredible. The New Testament, Luke recounting and the angels declaring that Jesus is God. He's just not any old God, but Yahweh himself. So this is how the promises are going to be fulfilled. It's that God is going to take flesh. (laughs) And this is why there is such great hope and peace and joy in this seed, in this offspring. He comes, identifies, he is Savior, he is Christ, he is Lord. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just a Christmas season. This is us coming around the first coming of Christ around these truths and locking arms around them, saying these are significant bringing our families up in a way to come around those truths as we tear into presence on Christmas morning. That this is the true joy of this time. And of course, the angels would bust out in the song. Why wouldn't you? Because this is incredible news. Music is designed for us to just overwhelm and declare what is going on. So at the conclusion of this great news, It wouldn't do to just have one angel, but a multitude of the heavenly host gather around and they sing. Loudly, I presume. I don't think if, I don't know if anyone brought a heavenly piano or anything, but there they were singing loudly. Glory in the highest to God. Notice the way they even communicate his glory. Glory, uh, in the highest way you can put it, (laughs) in the highest, most possible way that you can put glory, that we're getting close to what this means. Peace upon earth among those whom God's favor rests. See, even the angels are understanding something here, that this is really good news for those who in faith and repentance will trust God's promise being fulfilled in Christ. I mean, this is glory indeed, right? And it's all given to God, glory in the highest, glory beyond what our minds can comprehend. It is all given to God alone for this baby who is Savior, Christ, and Yahweh, the Lord himself. You see, the angels, they show us what we are to do at these thoughts. Praise God. (laughs) There's really no other adequate response. Because joy flows from the good news about Jesus. True joy flows from the good news about Jesus. What's the good news? That the Lord saves. Brothers and sisters, what great joy we celebrate this morning. In the culmination of all we have been studying over the last three weeks comes to this moment. Let us not soon forget the work of God and the birth of Christ. But we have been doing this over the last several weeks. And maybe you're like, okay, why is this important? If anything, like uh, oftentimes in my household, why, 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 why? Why have we been doing this over the last couple weeks? 
Just get to Jesus, let's celebrate. Why have we been tracking and painstakingly looking at the and marveling at how God has been working? Why is it so important to focus on the first coming of Christ at looking at the story? Glad you asked. Let's look at Luke 24 and let's see why as we close out this morning. Now you're going to have to turn in your Bibles a few pages over to Luke 24. Give you a second to turn there. Luke 2 is glorious, full of great joy. But here, what we find in Luke 24, this is post-resurrection. We all know the story. Jesus grows, lives a sinless life, is killed, buried, and resurrected. Here we find this joyous moment in the manger culminating in Christ's death and resurrection. So this scene of 24 is post-resurrection, okay? Jesus walks with a couple of people who are discussing uh, the sudden and weird turn of events regarding Christ. Now, what we just read in Luke 2, it kind of gets pretty surprising what happens to this baby. Wait a minute, is Savior, Christ, Lord, and they killed him? Well, that's rather surprising. So, so they're discussing the weird uh, turn of events. They're really perplexed at all the events of Christ. Why? Everything we just talked about. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. All that joy turns to sadness at the death of this Savior, Christ, and Lord. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Obviously, they don't understand it's Jesus quite yet. They're like, have you had your head in the sand? Where have you been? And he said to them, "Uh, what things? Do tell. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one. You and I just read everything that said he is the one. But here, post-resurrection, they're wondering, is he the one? Oh no, the one who was born in a manger, he's dead. We had had a lot of hope. We were hopeful that he was the one. They go on to say, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Much like you and I, if we were living in the day, they just simply cannot comprehend what has happened. The glorious declaration of the angels. And now the one lays dead. They can't comprehend what has happened, especially considering all that we just looked at, right? Their hope has all but vanished at this point. Then Jesus does something wonderful. You want to know why we have done what we have done over the last couple of weeks? Here it is. Listen as I read what Jesus says, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
not calling you foolish. He's just, this is Jesus' words. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, here's what he says. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And this is what's phenomenal, because this is what you and I have been doing over the last couple of weeks. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. His answer to their perplexity, his answer to their loss of hope is to flip back. is to flip back over the Old Testament and say, oh, you missed it. Look at what the Heavenly Father has been doing. Was it not necessary when hope wanes, when joy is all but lost, see what the Lord has done. Jesus sits with these men and does what you and I have done over the last several weeks. From Moses, I don't know, maybe he opened up Genesis 3, maybe. To the prophets, maybe he opened up Isaiah 9. We know there's times in the synagogue he opened Isaiah and interpreted, this is about me. He opened up, he traced it all for them. And that's what you and I have been doing. From Moses to the prophets, tracing what God has done to bring Christ, the baby who lay in a manger. We've connected the dots, and what, we, what have we seen? Just how necessary it was for Christ to come. And not only come, but to suffer. Which is yet another time in our rhythm as a church where we slow down and think about that piece. That that also was part of what the baby in the manger would do. Here's why it's important that we consider the first advent of Christ. We do this because we need to remind ourselves his birth, his life, his suffering are necessary for our salvation. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want us to marvel at the work of God to walk away and say, oh, how it was necessary for this baby to come. In his birth, taking on flesh, doing what was required, in his life, living sinlessly, doing what you could not do, doing what I could not do, and then suffering, dying to pay the penalty for our sin to which we could not play. Yet another surprise in the fulfillment that all that God has been saying. But here during the Advent season, his birth and his life and eventually his suffering, let us be mindful it was necessary. And let us celebrate at the work of God in bringing Christ. And this all makes sense, everything we've been looking at. So much joy flows from what we've been doing over the last several weeks. Christ has done what we cannot do. Coming in flesh, he identifies, takes on our plight. In life, he lives what is required of all, complete obedience to God. And in suffering, pays for what we cannot pay ourselves. Jesus sits with them and says, oh, foolish ones, look, look, look. Let us dare, let us not dare remove him from the centerpiece of this season. And more importantly, our lives. Because joy flows from him flows from the manger to this moment we're gathered here today. 
joy is rooted in the God-man taking flesh to fulfill God's promises, to identify with us, to administer the death blow to sin. I wonder why does joy not define the Christian people often? For just a season, four Sundays, four Sundays, we remind ourselves where joy is found, in Christ alone. It is necessary for him to come. When our hope wanes, go back over the text, go back over the scripture, just like Jesus did with those men, and point and see the work of God. That's joy, brothers and sisters. When you wake up Christmas morning and you read, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Let that hang. Who is the Christ? Let that hang. The Lord. I hope and pray that you will sing along with the angels. Glory to God on the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you're with us this morning and don't know Christ, who is the center of this season as Savior, please grab someone. True joy is found in him. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for this morning. We, in, uh, as a body of believers, have worked hard over the last several weeks to do exactly what Jesus did with those troubled men who had lost hope, who were unaware of all that you had been doing throughout human history to bring your promises to fulfillment. In that first coming of Christ, we are made aware of so many things. But this morning, we lock arms around the truths of who Christ is. We cling to the joy that we have in him as Savior, him as the one the anointed one, and him, Father, as you taking flesh. And we rejoice this morning in all that he is. We ask that you would stretch and challenge us throughout this week to be mindful of Christ. What a joyous moment together in your word. Father, would you continue to work in our hearts? It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.